0: It has been a good year since we've done a program on what is possibly uh, the most important area in biological science. It surely is the most important realm within biological science and one of the most important realms within modern science generally, namely the study of the dynamics and the mechanics of the evolutionary process it is the contention of one of our guests that it's silly to uh, assert evolution is a theory, not a a confirmed science. All confirmed science builds theories and verifies and tests theories. If they are capable of falsification, as Karl Popper put it, then uh, if their propositions are capable of falsification, then you're dealing with a science. And the major propositions of evolutionary theory have not been falsified. They have been, quote, verified. So argues Jerry Coyne, who is... A professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Chicago And the author of the new book, titled with direct assertiveness And I very much like the title, Why Evolution is True Pound the table once or twice, it's true And we shall show that it is, as we converse tonight With Jerry Coyne and with an old friend, Robert Richards who is a philosopher, basically, by training, but much interested in the biological sciences. Indeed, he's done major writing on Darwin, and he is professor of history, philosophy, and psychology, also at the University of Chicago. Jerry, uh, you may remember that in the history of Judaism, they put a question to the Rabbi Hillel, the very same great early rabbi uh, who, uh, for whom the Hillel centuries are named, and they said to him, um, what is the essence of the law uh, that could be given while standing on one leg? And his answer was essentially to quickly recite the Golden Rule. That is the essence of what was meant was uh, Jewish law, Talmudic law, religiously based law. All of that is by way of quick background. As if standing on one leg, what is the essence of evolutionary uh, theory?
1: Well, it's a little bit longer than what Rabbi Hillel said, but it's really just a series of propositions, um, the first being that evolution happened, that as organisms evolved or changed over time, and what lives today did not live in the past, but are, is, are the descendants of organisms that lived in the past. Um, the second proposition is that that change was largely mediated by natural selection, a process that Darwin himself um, suggested in his great tome in 1859. Um, his, thir- his the third proposition is that organisms split over time; that his lineages will divide and ramify. So, starting with a single ancestry, you get a lot of descendants. Mm-hmm. That's the so-called tree of life. And finally, I guess the the idea that the process is gradual. That is, that evolution, important evolutionary change doesn't happen within a year or a decade or even a hundred years. It takes thousands to millions of years for it to occur. So that means the Earth, of course, must be very old. That's corollary to that. So those are the major tenets of evolution. Very old?
0: Theory. I thought Bishop, Bishop Usher established that it was, began, how many years ago was that?
1: 4,004 4. 4, 4 B.C. On only 4,004 so. 4 B.C. <laughs> uh, yeah. on like what 9 page?
2: o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's I'm right. British... Time, how, did, how did meantime. how did
0: Usher, who was not really quite a, or totally a fool, but it was a, a devout, uh, clergyman of the Church of England, I think, how did he der- derive the very date?
2: Well, he he simply calculated back from the begots of uh, yeah. of the Pentateuch and determined approx well exactly when it occurred. There's a wonderful story that Darwin tells on himself in regard to that. He uh, he indicated that he was not a. A serious student of the Bible, although at Cambridge he had intended to become a minister. That was the vocation that his father really had chosen for him. But he said that he had always assumed that that date of uh, 4004 BC was in fact in the Bible. And he only la- laterally recognized that it was, he had one of these old family Bibles and it was in the marginalia of the Bible. Mm-hmm. But he just simply indicates that uh, he wasn't really uh, a kind of biblical scholar that uh, many of his confreres were.
0: The assertion with which your book is titled uh, is, of course, very, uh, is indeed very direct and uh, begs a quick follow up query. Why evolution is true, you say? Okay, why is it true? I believe it's true. But uh, I understand the the kinds of doubts that do arise, quite apart from biblical fundamentalism, which I'm putting aside as not relevant to the serious inquiry. These are separate realms, and uh, one needn't work that problem any further in this conversation. But there are other doubts that even intelligent secularists... Uh, can attain as for example gee I've lived a long time and I don't see any great change in this species or even in other species and uh, it still seems a little strange that those wonderfully intricate organs like the eye, like the pancreas like the brain with all of its very special functions including the emergence of consciousness that all of that could have quote evolved there must be possibly something else evolution is there but something else must also be operated guiding evolution
1: well, that's a lot of stuff to respond to. Take your time. <laughs> the question of why evolution is true, I mean, in the scientific sense, that we have accumulated so much evidence since it was first proposed 150 years ago um, that only a, somebody that was irrational or blind would deny that the theory is actually quite supported. And by the theory, I mean all of those propositions I just outlined evolution, mm-hmm. common ancestry, natural selection, etc. So. Um, it's not something. It's not evolutionary biology. is not a religion to scientists. It's a hypothesis that has been repeatedly confirmed, and we haven't found any evidence against it. Um, about the organs of complexity that you mentioned. Um, Darwin himself, in the origin, I'm sure Bob knows this, <laughs> is, uh, takes up the problem of the eye, which is extremely yeah. difficult to, for many people to see how it evolved. And he actually answers it by showing that <laughs> we have all gradations of eye development in different species, starting with a flat, um, light-sensitive pigment disk. And then we have like abalones whose eyes are slightly more complicated, and limpets, whose eyes are slightly more complicated than that, all the way up <laughs> to octopi and humans that have complex eyes. If you can see all these functional eyes and existing animals, then you can envision them as a lineal product so you can see one thing developing in the other. So that wasn't really a problem.
0: In fact, the passage from Darwin is so beautifully given that I just handed it to Bob Richards to read.
2: To suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and, and chromatic aberration could have been formed by, the na- by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Yet reason tells me that if numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor can be shown to exist, if further the eye does vary ever so slightly and the variations be inherited, which is certainly the case, and if variation or modification <coughs> in the organ be ever so useful to an animal Under changing conditions of life, then the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable, by our imagination, can hardly be considered real. The man not only thought clearly; he wrote. He wrote clearly too. and
0: and he wrote with great style, actually.
2: Yes, uh, he's a great stylist. Uh,
0: One great question, which wasn't answered by Darwin, has only been answered. Uh, I suppose, since the early years of the 20th century, is where does that variation come from? Why is there so much variation from organism to organism within the same species? Uh, Variations which tend to make some representatives of the species more fit for survival or more capable of adaptation. But Darwin hadn't the faintest idea of what the source of variation was. Uh, You now have very considerable knowledge about that. Mm -hmm. Our guests tonight are. Robert Richards, professor of history, philosophy, and psychology at the University of Chicago, uh, and the leading fellow at the Morris Fishbein, uh, rather he is the Morris Fishbein Professor of Science and Medicine. Isn't there a Morris Fishbein Center as well?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Of which you are the head. Yes. Exactly. And it's a a center for the history of medicine, basically.
2: No, it's a center for the history of science. Of science,
0: more generally. Generally, medicine. And Jerry Coyne, whose new book we are... The publication of his new book, we are celebrating tonight, uh, is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolution, it used to be called the Department of Zoology, at the University of Chicago, and he's, the new book is titled Why Evolution is True. The basic question I was raising, before we get to some of the evidence that you review in Why Evolution is True, is what did Darwin not understand, and what do we now understand about the nature of biological variation?
1: Well, that's one of the things he got wrong. So, when we call evolutionary biology Darwinism, as we want to do, that doesn't mean that we adhere strictly to everything that Darwin said. <laughs> he was wrong on a number of points, and it, the source of variation, and the way inheritance worked was one of the important ones. What it's, did he
0: think? was? Well, this he
1: had an erroneous theory. Um, he actually waffles back and forth about it. He, for example, he thought that the characteristics of the parents would blend together sort of seamlessly in the offspring. So. And it looks like that. If you have a tall father and a short mother, the offspring are intermediate. So, but the problem with that is, if it hap- if people keep reproducing with one, another, the whole population eventually becomes the mean, and then all the variation disappears. You would That's get what statisticians call regression to yeah, the regression, mean. Regression. I mean, everybody's the same. There's yeah. no variation at all. That was a severe problem for Darwin. Um, it was pointed out by an engineer, Fleming Jenkin, who criticized it. He really never was able to answer that in his lifetime. He sort of flailed about. Where does the variation come from? He thought, well, maybe when animals adapt to changing conditions, that something will happen to their. Um, anyway, that that was a big problem, and it wasn't solved until Mendel was rediscovered in the early 1900s. In 1901, is that right? Um, and we know Mendel.
0: Uh, stop for a moment and explain yeah.
1: who Mendel was and what he did. Pardon? Explain who Mendel was. Oh, yeah. And what sorry, he did. I'm taking it for granted. Uh, Gregor Mendel. the... Um, the Czechoslovakian monk who did breeding experiments in the late 19th century and wrote up papers about them, which were largely ignored until they were simultaneously, simultaneously rediscovered in I think 1901 by three people and that's when genetics really started and it was quickly realized thereafter that this solves the dilemma that Darwin had where the variation came from His
0: stuff uh, on recessive and dominant genes and so on
1: yeah and also shortly thereafter we discovered about mutations which were actually the source of all the variation and we didn't have to resort to sort of hokey theories what about is that. a mutation? Um, it's a change in the DNA usually in the triplet code that alters what a gene does so
0: that. we haven't fully understood mutation and thus variation itself until uh, the uh, until the decoding of DNA.
1: Yeah, on that precise level. I mean, we knew enough about genetics by the 1930s and 40s to be able to incorporate it together with Darwin's theories and what we call neo-Darwinism, which is the synthesis of sort of genetics, natural history, and the observations of Darwin. And so that's the theory that we really talk about when we say evolution is true. It's not exactly what Darwin said. It's pretty close to what he said, but it it has all the advances. So
0: Watson and Crick really gave us the key to fully understanding variation. What is the key? Watson and Crick gave us the key. Oh,
1: uh well we now yeah they gave us the key to understanding precisely how it works that is a mutation is the change in one of the four bases of the dna code mm-hmm. a c g and t and now we know how that works but we had a pretty good idea before then that you know variations were mutations that they occurred in the genetic material we just didn't know what the genetic material was exactly until what was do we occurred. know about the rate of variation how much variation goes on
2: how much variation goes on. Well, <laughs> quite a lot, and I guess variation is of two kinds. Ultimately, mutation is the ultimate source, but mm-hmm. recombination uh, uh, during uh, reproduction is one of the other sources of variation, at least manifest variation.
0: This is the mama-daddy combo, right? And its consequences. Yes. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, Darwin recognized, <laughs> and as we still do, that uh, parents produce offspring that are very much like the parents, but not identical to the parents so that there's variation with every uh, reproduction. And it's that small kind of variation that uh, natural selection works on, uh, incessantly and continually.
0: Now, how can one really demonstrate that? Uh, Easily. I was, well, I was about to say, how can one demonstrate that with the species Homo sapiens? But maybe the best way to start uh, is, to de- is to talk about research which demonstrates that with other organisms that have a much shorter shorter life cycle so you can do many, many generations in a month or in a year rather than just uh, well, one I mean, every One of the ways that Darwin
2: demonstrated it is through uh, artificial selection. So that you can take uh, organisms that are of one morphology, one shape, one character, and in a relatively short period of time you can change them rather dramatically so
0: this is in the breeding of dogs among breeding of fans.
2: dogs breeding of pigeons cows sheep uh, these are the kinds of things that darwin really mm-hmm. was quite well acquainted with uh, one of his friends uh, sir john seebright uh, said that uh, he who was a pigeon breeder that uh, if you wanted a beak he could produce one in about 3 years you know give the specifications and he would produce a pigeon having a beak of that character how would he do that uh, by breeding from pigeons who had some small uh, changes that were in the right direction that one was looking for and continually to breed from the offspring of those pigeons that had that um, uh, change in the right direction. He also said, if you know, if you wanted tail feathers of a certain kind, that would take a little longer, five years perhaps. But it, it did appear to Darwin and I think to animal breeders that uh, artificial selection... While it wasn't quite like uh, the animal was silly putty, you could really mold the animal in a variety of ways. And all you have to do is think about the uh, infinite variety of dogs, breeds of dogs, from uh, dachshunds to Great Danes, from Pekingese uh, to wolfhounds. And if you assume that basically, and I think there are a couple of views about the origins of dogs, but they came from one Ur Pooch. That's a huge um, difference in the descendants of that one animal.
0: And are those all man-made variations, man-controlled variations, or do, do they happen in nature, in the history of dogs?
2: Well, I think uh, what Darwin was very good about in his uh, chapter on uh, artificial selection, the first uh, variability uh, under uh, artificial selection in the first chapter of the origin, is to show that while there is certainly what he called uh, methodical uh, selection that is when you have a fairly precise idea what you're trying to produce and you go about producing it. Uh, for pigeon breeders, for example, that most uh, selection is what he called unconscious selection. Namely, breeders uh, just want to breed for the best, and they have a very vague idea of what the best is. And but that nonetheless produces great changes in uh, domestic breeds. So that. Intention, that is, specific intention, as Darwin tried to show, was not crucial in artificial selection. So, artificial selection really blends into natural selection. And I think that was one of the geniuses of that uh, early work. You started
0: by talking about uh, this friend of Darwin's who could give give you a longer beak if required, which uh, was actually, of course, very parallel. To early observations by Darwin, I think on the Galapagos, about the length of the beak of the finches. Galapagos finches, isn't that right?
1: Yeah. Um, Let's
0: talk the, about that work, which he reports, yeah. I guess, as early. Is it in The Origin of Species, or does he report it in The Voyage of the Beagle?
1: Well, he talks about the finches in The Voyage of the Beagle, and he talks about them in The Origin, but um, he really. I mean, it's only been recently that we've come to understand how selection has molded these animals in nature to do the work of a pair of biologists at Princeton University. What did they show? Um, they were one. Of, this is one of the great demonstrations of evolution in a human lifetime. It was Peter and Rosemary Grant and their students on the Galapagos. Um, their most famous finding is that there was a drought, I believe, in 1977 there, which killed off all the plants that had small seeds. And that imposed a strong selection on the birds to have bigger and stronger beaks to crack the remaining seeds that were available. So a number of birds starved to death because their beaks were too small. This was in one species, the medium ground finch. And sure enough, over just a period of two or three years, the beaks became stouter. and They changed by 10%, which is an enormous rate of evolutionary change. And this was all observed in just a couple of years. So it's one of our paradigmatic examples of natural selection in action.
0: And that's, that's sta- paradigmatic, you say, because it represents the basic nature of alteration, variation-producing alteration in some characteristic of the species.
1: Correct. I mean, all this was demonstrated by the grants that the finches were variable, that that variation had a genetic component to it, and sure enough, here comes an El Nino, and then the variation suddenly becomes subject to selection, and lo and behold, the finches get stutter beaks in just a couple of years.
0: But still, here is the doubt that the ordinary person of some education and of no great uh, in investment in the biblical narrative as uh, inerrant. Uh, this is, here's still the sort of doubt that haunts somebody who wants to fully comprehend and fully endorse evolution. The distance that organic life has gone from the unicellular organism, an amoeba-like organism, and amoeba wasn't the first by a long shot, we, we know, on up to the three organisms sitting at this table at this moment. Uh, even if that is over a course of, what, how many billion years? Two and a half billion? Oh, three, three, plus, and a
2: half. Yeah, three, three and a half.
0: Three and a half billion. Even over a course of three and a half billion, how do you get from that one-celled amoeba to Jerry Coyne?
1: Um, well, it's not divinely inspired, although I'd like you say it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you might
2: change your mind about yeah.
1: that. I mean, the problem that people have with that, there, I mean, there's two sources of it. One, of course, is the religious, background which tells them that this can't yeah, happened. but because, i put that aside yeah me. and the other one is that people are simply unable to comprehend the huge spans of time involved in the 3.5 billion years of life i mean when you look for example at how much the human brain has changed it's gone from like 500 cubic centimeters which is half of a liter to about a liter and a, and a third but over 7 million years um, that change works out to be a change of about point zero zero one percent per generation so it's a really small change i mean the pro- i don't understand this um problem people have with extrapolation because when they go to the grand canyon and they look at how deep it is and i mean they're perfectly capable of accepting that that river carved this huge canyon over millions of years but they have problems seeing how evolution over billions of years can create me for example from an amoeba um the ultimate answer to that though is that we have the fossil evidence that it did happen and that's part of the stuff I talk about in my book. So.
0: But the thing about you, Jerry Coyne, that is so dazzling is uh, not only your brain and your work, but your pancreas and your liver and the way in which your lungs function and the carotid uh, artery uh, and the car- the, artery, uh, and the, uh, the articulation of the, the bones in your hands, enabling uh, very, very rapid and complex digital operations, Uh, with your fingers. How do you get all the intelligent design? People say you can't get all of this without assuming, sure, there's an evolutionary process, but something must be guiding it to uh, produce uh, organs that execute such complex functions and execute them in correlation with other organs doing equally complex
1: functions. Yeah, well, um, that's that's the problem of design that things that look well designed i mean things do somebody does something not somebody x ex- does execute that um optimization process um it's not optimal by the way where there are problems i'm not perfect i got a bad back that's a result of the fact that i evolved from a ancestor that walked on four legs but it was darwin's genius to show that that perfection that so excites our admiration i think is what he called it is perfectly explainable by natural selection. I mean, there's no reason not to think that selection could mold that. Bob just talked about the dogs. We can make a dog that looks just <laughs> like a cheetah just by selecting them variation. We
0: also heard Darwin on the evolution of the eye, right? Which is a very complex organ
1: right. doing very wonderful work. Yeah, I mean, his genius is to think up thought experiments like this and to start his book with this mm-hmm. section on artificial selection. But people are dazzled by the sort of complexity and perfection of organisms and they don't realize that natural selection is perfectly capable of doing that and organisms aren't perfect I mean, every organism shows vestiges of its ancestry, we have an appendix that gets inflamed, makes us sick, kills some people, people have bad backs, prostate glands swell up and block off through the urethra, we're not really that blind we're pretty well designed but um, we're molded by natural selection but not in a way to achieve perfection and that's exactly what we'd expect if natural selection were the agent
0: Floyd flattered himself in one of his uh, works, in which he said, there are four. There are three people that have really shaken up uh, m- m- mankind in its thoughts about itself. The first was Ptolemy, or rather Copernicus. Copernicus, Copernicus who undid Ptolemaic uh, 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 astronomy and said that Earth is not the center of the universe, but merely one little thing floating out there that diminished our significance as a species uh, and then another was Darwin who said man is not a special and unique creation but is continuous with all other forms of animal life and that put us back in the animal kingdom in a way which further diminished our pride of self and then came I Freud, who demonstrated that uh, we are not rational, but we are hounded by all the deep devils lodged in the unconscious. Uh, Freud was wrong, in fact, about his own significance and about the utility or validity of his own science. But he recognized that Darwin really shook us up a good deal, and I think he was right in that. The consequences of Darwinism for how we live and uh, for our politics, for our social order, for our attitudes towards ourselves, is worth close scrutiny. And the consequences of Darwinism in broad realms beyond the narrow but significant question of biological evolution, the way in which Darwinism has affected other areas of science as well. All of that is well worth some further consideration. And we are doing our annual seminar on evolutionary research. I guess it's an update on evolutionary research. And it occurs to me that, actually, I've jumped ahead a little bit too quickly. I do want to talk about Darwinism and its consequences, but let's go back for a moment to the topic uh, which is uh, prefigured by the very title of Jerry Coyne's book, Why Evolution is True. Let me read you a quotation from somebody you both know well. Even I knew him. He uh, died too young, as we all agree, Uh, namely uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who says, Our creationist detractors charge that evolution is an unproved and unprovable charade a secular religion masquerading as science. They claim above all that evolution generates no predictions, never exposes itself to test, and therefore stands as dogma rather than as uh, disprovable science. This claim is nonsense. We make and test risky predictions all the time. Our success is not dogma, but a highly probable indication of evolution's basic truth. We make and test risky predictions all the time. What are some of the risky predictions that you feature in this book?
1: Well, one of them was Darwin's. In 1871, before we had any fossil record of human evolution, he predicted that the ancestors of humans would be most likely found in Africa, rather than any place else, based on the fact that chimpanzees and gorillas, who most resembled us and were probably most most closely related to us, both lived in Africa. Um, There's been a lot of predictions of fossils of that nature. Another one that was um, found just recently was the discovery of marsupial fossils in the Antarctica—they were known from Australia, of course, because that's where the marsupials live—and we also, have, but we have the first marsupials in South America and North America. So somehow they must have gotten to Australia, um, and we now know the continents were all fused back then, and so Australia was connected to to um, South America via Antarctica. So if the marsupials made their way from one place to the other, they had to go across Antarctica. So they predicted that we would search if in that. Continent, which it's hard to do, of course, that we would find fossils of marsupials, and sure enough, they were found, um, you know, just exactly as predicted, and they they occurred at just the right time when the continents were joined together. That's just one of innumerable predictions that have been. You yourself have,
0: have been researching with uh, that very common laboratory animal, the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. That? That's melanogaster, that's one. of Two thousand species, yeah. Yeah, and um, what? How do you see evolution at work? Uh, the usefulness of that species is. It uh, goes through
1: generations very rapidly. What's the generation? Uh, the depends on the species. In in the species you mentioned, it's about 10 days. 10 days. Yeah. So you've been through hundreds or thousands of generations. Easily, right. You see evolution at work there. Well, you, you, yeah, easily, I mean, we can see it not only work in the lab, out in nature, the flies have become resistant to DDT in areas where it was applied. It, they become resistant to almost any poison. I mean, that's what natural selection does, even though the selection is imposed by humans. There was few who got the makeup that
0: resists the poison, Persistence, survive. Correct. Yeah, all the others die.
1: Yeah, the ones that are that have some change in their enzymes that yeah. enable them to break down DDT more easily are the ones that survive. So in areas, and you find those flies in areas where DDT has been applied. In areas where it hasn't, you don't find it. Again, that's you know a prediction of evolution that's been verified. We can also generate this kind of resistance in the laboratory. Um, you can select for on, on Drosophila, as in dogs, as Bob mentioned. You can make a fly do anything you want by selecting them. You can make them have more bristles. You can make them bigger or smaller. You can change their behavior. You can change their ability to learn. Um, you can change their mating behavior. So we can practice artificial selection on flies much more easily than we could do it on dogs, for example, and see results very quickly. So,
0: What's the range and, and continued relevance of, of evolutionary research these days? How broadly does it range? Over what questions does it particularly focus?
1: Well, evolution touches on almost every area of biology. There's a famous quote by my great, great academic grandfather, Theodosius Dobzhansky, nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not really true. I mean, some things do. But ultimately, the reason why things are there, why we have a pancreas, why we have an eye, can only be explained by natural selection. So almost any biological feature, you can ask the question about why it was there and how it came to be. And that's true not just in evolutionary biology, but in physiology and the study of animals' behavior and why do animals behave the way they do. And the study of where animals are found, for example, why we have marsupials in Australia, that question can only be answered in evolution. It has relevance to our own lives as well, um, epidemiology and the resistance of bacteria to poisons, for example, the resistance of tuberculosis to almost all drugs now is an evolutionary phenomenon, evolution of the bacterium in response to the drugs that are There's an animal
0: that, that bacterium, Yeah, or sort of animal.
1: Yeah, oh, it, well, it's not really in the kingdom of Animalia, but it behaves like, I mean, all organisms that reproduce yeah. be behave the same way, basically.
0: And so a new species of of, of, of the tubercular bacterium
1: have evolved. Well, you wouldn't call it a new species. I mean, it's still the same bacterium, but it's got some new genes that enable it to resist uh-huh. the toxin. If you extrapolate that over, you know, I mean, this has happened in the last 20 years. If that kind of change occurred for long periods of time, eventually you would get what you call a new species. So,
0: That's one of the reasons why our doctors tell us these days, we don't want to use antibiotics unless
1: absolutely necessary. That's right. I mean, antibiotic resistance is the greatest comeback you can give to anybody who says, and many people do, I've never seen evolution operate in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So you say it happens in the distant past. Show me a case of evolution happening now. Well, antibiotic resistance is one of them, and it happens not only in tuberculosis bacteria. I mean, that's that's drug resistance to TB. Um, it happens in. Um, Staphylococcus and Streptococcus and E. coli any (laughs) microorganism that humans try to get rid of has evolved resistance to the drugs that we use to try to get rid of it so that's natural selection that's
0: (laughs) one of the reasons uh, that's the basic reason
1: for uh, the increasing rate of hospital infections isn't it I think so I mean I'm not an expert on that but it's clearly responsible for the rise of drug-resistant tuberculosis as well as drug-resistant infections in many cases such as those that arise in hospitals
0: but do we see any evidence uh, and again, a common question lots of people of goodwill but still a little bit confused about uh, evolutionary science would raise. Do we see any evidence over the historical record of Homo sapiens of uh, evolutionary change?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we have a very, very good record of human evolution, which is surprising, given that humans weren't particularly numerous.
0: We know yeah. we've now got bigger brains than yeah. uh, than
1: certain hominids
0: from which we come had yeah. earlier. But, I mean, as we've been Homo sapiens for whatever number of years, that's, how long have we About been?
1: About six Six hundred thousand. Six hundred thousand years. years.
0: Yeah. Uh, do we see in Homo sapiens significant evolutionary adaptation? Yeah,
1: well, that's a short time in evolutionary change, but we a mere yeah, we've seen. I mean, here there are a few examples. Well, one of the most famous is um, the evolution of lactose tolerance in populations of uh-huh. humans that raise cows. Um, the the ancestral condition is lactose intolerant. We can digest milk sugar, which is lactose, when we're breastfeeding, but when we um, are weaned, we gradually become intolerant to it. Our ancestors didn't drink milk as adults, so they didn't need this enzyme to break down the sugar. Well, all of a sudden, populations started becoming pastoral, mm-hmm. i.e. raising cows and goats and sheep for milk, and you can find that exactly in those populations, and this has happened only in the last 10,000 years, that that drink milk, that the lactose intolerance is reduced. In other words, our ability to digest milk has remains turned on throughout our adult life so that's a good example of evolutionary change
0: we are now approaching another quick commercial break and then Bob Richards is under the spotlight, we talk about Darwinism and its further influences but first a uh, word or two this program that we're doing right now I hereby predict will wind up on our audio archive even before that in podcast form. Uh, And that reminds me that I want to respond to a few people who've been asking me, where is the program that we did last Friday, the one on the history of inaugurations, presidential inaugurations? Um, Is it up on the Audio Archive? Not yet, but it will be available as a podcast um, next Monday and ultimately will wind up on the Audio Archive. That was the program in which I was joined by... Uh, three presidential historians, Rick um, uh, and uh, uh, Rick Brookheiser, Herbert Holzer, and Albert Marin, all of whom, as it happened, uh, joined me in receiving a medal from President Bush at the White House only a few months ago, the National Endowment for the Humanities annual medal. So this was a reunion of our White House group uh, on a very interesting subject indeed, on the very uh, day of the presidential inauguration. Uh, That will be available, as I say, by Monday and will be in the permanent audio archive, ultimately, as will tonight's program, and directly back to uh, Jerry Coyne and Robert Richards. And the question I raised a while ago, uh, Robert, but didn't give you a chance to respond to. But now, quite seriously, what has Darwinism done, quite apart from its very important achievements and confirmation within uh, the realm of hard science, but beyond that?
2: Well, beyond that, um, I guess it, it concerns our... Activities, that is, the activities of human beings, both individually and socially. And Darwin uh, initially recognized that he had to deal with, as he called it, the citadel itself, namely human beings. So that while his theory that you find expressed in The Origin of Species really, for the most part, omits man completely, except for one vague remark at the end, uh, Darwin did that rather intentionally. He had, it, it looks like he had intended to include human beings in the expression of his theory initially, but then he recognized that people would uh, be focused on that completely, and in a certain sense uh, it would detract from giving a fair hearing to the theory as a whole. So he he avoided talking about human beings, although his notebooks uh, prior to the publication of The Origin are filled with considerations of human behavior, human social behavior, and particularly human morality. Uh, Darwin was quite well aware that um, the distinction between man and animals, at least as most British intellectuals would have conceived it, um, the barrier between the two was not uh, human reason. Uh, most British empiricists thought that their dogs could uh, had a bit of reason and were not terribly different from at least their, uh, their own servants in that respect. So that there was a continuity there, but what there, where continuity was missing is in uh, moral behavior, that um, human beings were moral, but animals were certainly not. So Darwin thought he had to deal with that problem, and really right from the very beginning, he started formulating theories of human morality. This only appears later in 1871 in The Descent of Man, when he's rather forced to consider the question, because although... Uh, He barely mentioned man in The Origin of Species. All of the reviews of The Origin of Species that appeared uh, quite quickly uh, focused on what it would mean for human beings and human behavior and their place in the world. And all of the debate uh, held even in the House of Commons, as I remember it, uh,
0: about this degrading of man to be merely... Uh, descended from apes, was a common accusation.
2: That's true, and I think even today, the uh, implications of Darwinism, I mean, even among evolutionary biologists, you find really quite radically different views about the extent to which the resources of evolutionary theory can give accounts of human behavior, whether some features of human behavior are more directly under the control of the genes, for instance, and what part of human behavior is uh, learned behavior, what part depends upon experience and the relationship between the two. So these are highly debatable and contentious topics among uh, contemporary evolutionary biologists.
0: Of course, as you well know, um, what's happened in the field in which I applied my academic trade, and you've got some conjoint connection to psychology as well, and I know are appointed in the psychology department, to which I belong for many years at the University of Chicago, uh, is the evolution of evolutionary uh, psychology, so to speak, uh, in which psychologists and others of related disciplines are asking how much in our behavioral repertoire is fixed, quote, hardwired. I think it was E.O. Wilson who may have first uh, coined the term hardwired, uh, whereas we thought it was experientially based. How much of our behavior in courtship and our uh, ways of getting angry and how much uh, of just about everything that defines us as idiosyncratic human beings is, in fact, of evolutionary derivation.
2: Well, uh, that, of course, uh, in American psychology became a a real um, um, dividing line was created in American psychology concerning those issues, as you well know, up from the 1920s, probably right through the 60s. Uh, behaviorism was the dominant form of research and.
0: Which viewed man as sort of an empty box and whatever experience wrote. It's the tabula rasa view of man. Exactly. From John Locke. Exactly. J.B. W- Watson at the University of Chicago. At the University of Chicago. <laughs> behaviorism. That's right. Although, interestingly
2: enough, he started out as an evolutionary biologist, so he was interested in animal instinct. Yeah. But quickly formulated uh, a conception, which is a very powerful conception, about how learning occurs and how behavior is molded. But um, with the coming of the Germans, particularly the uh, ethologists in the 1960s, Conrad Lawrence, uh, Nico Tinbergen, uh, they applied Darwinism to human behavior, uh, excuse me, to animal behavior and animal instinct. And it was a very powerful set of considerations. And it eventually got the attention of American psychologists. So I think there was a resurgence of interest Mm. in evolutionary theory. Um, it took a while after the war, after the Second World War, because of what was seen to be the, the racist implications of evolutionary theory. At least that was the way it was interpreted. Uh, but eventually, um, evolutionary considerations came back into American psychology. They have yet to penetrate anthropology. I must say, even our colleagues at the University of Chicago are still rather dubious that uh, human behavior, human social behavior, is amenable to uh, evolutionary considerations. But um, now I think uh, evolutionary psychology is one of those areas of uh, intellectual concern that is growing apace.
0: One of its um, major principal authors is Steven Pinker, who is indeed also uh, a blurber for Jerry Coyne's book. Um, Pinker says, Scientists don't use the word true lightly, but in this lively and engrossing book, Jerry Coyne shows what, or rather, why biologists happy to use it when it comes to evolution. Evolution is true, not because the experts say it is, nor because some worldview demands it, but because the evidence overwhelmingly supports it. There are many superb books on evolution, but this one is superb in a new way. It explains the latest evidence for evolution lucidly, thoroughly, and with devastating effectiveness. I've always thought Pinker makes a good case for the um, hard wiring of her as a feature in human evolution, in that he's got the wildest hair of anybody in American academic life, <laughs> well, it's as interesting, because he
1: just discovered he has a gene for baldness. Does se- he really? He just sequenced his genome. It was in the New York Times oh, wonderful. a few days ago. And, um, <laughs> but the gene apparently hasn't acted. That's I one of guess. the things we're not... One- well, I don't think it will. I mean, he's in his 50s now, and he's still as hairy as he ever was. But uh-huh. it just shows that we're not complete slaves to our genes. Sort of.
0: You mentioned the uh, concern that there was something... Um, authoritarian or something racist uh, was the term you used about Darwinism. What is very disturbing uh, in the history of um, the influence of Darwin or of Darwinism is that the Nazis grabbed it, Uh, and the American eugenics movement grabbed it even earlier, and both were concerned, the Nazis in a fierce and uh, vile way, with the uh, improvement of the species by getting rid of inferior members of the species. And their basic argument against the Jews is a biological argument, or at least they think it is. Uh, and they argue that the they must they must somehow be pruned from the human field if we are going to maintain the purity of the Aryan race, which they defile by virtue of their very biological nature. They are unfit for true survival, therefore let's kill them, is the argument, and it's a Darwinian argument.
2: Well, I think I wouldn't want to pin this on Darwin. I think well, It was not that, Darwin's intention, of course. Well, it wasn't Darwin's intention, but I think if you look at the kinds of uh, racism expressed by Hitler, for example, in Mein Kampf, uh, there's no tincture of Darwin or Darwinism about it, and um, probably he gets most of his ideas about race from a guy by the name of Houston Stewart Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chamberlain himself was an anti-Darwinian. He was indeed a racist, but an anti-Darwinian racist. Um, and I think the people like, for example, Ernst Haeckel, who some think was a favorite of the Nazis, it turns out that uh, when you look at the history a little more carefully, you you discover that the Nazis were quite opposed to Haeckelian biology, and to uh, Darwinian biology because of its materialistic character. And it happened to be the case that um, uh, the communist adopted uh, evolutionary theory quite early and therefore there was (coughs) political opposition between communism and Nazism so that it was politically tainted on the one hand, it was materialistic on the other and I think most of uh, the Nazis were convinced that the Aryans did not come from monkeys. So that it, there is, um, while it, there is a, a eugenics component, uh, not all eugenicists were um, Darwinians. So I think one has to separate those out a little bit. And the, uh, you know, the overwhelming, uh, s- the the other sources for Nazi racism are so ubiquitous and overwhelming um, that I don't. I think it's a, a little uh, dicey to to pin this on Darwin they may have picked up a term like survival of the fittest mm-hmm. and used it uh, in a in a really uh, an untechnical way
0: another accusation has come from the left uh, namely that Darwinism and the theme of survival of the fittest has been used to rationalize, essentially, the oppression of the working class. If they can't rise out of their own fitness, then their lesser lot in life is to be tolerated and is part of nature.
2: But, you know, uh, several... Herbert
0: Spencer did argue that, in fact. Well,
2: but but Spencer is an interesting case, but the Marxists, for example, adopted Darwin quite early on. Uh, August Babel, a rather famous Mm -hmm. Marxist in Germany... Uh, wrote a book in which he endorsed the Darwinian idea because what it suggested is that, uh, as it were, there can be a change of class, a change of, as it were, species over time, so classes, human classes, can, uh, as it were, advance and progress. And that's one of the features of Darwinism, whether you think that's an authentic characteristic of Darwinism or not is another question, but that was certainly one of the interpretations given.
0: Now you, of course, uh, Richard, Uh, Robert Richards mentioned uh, Ernst Haeckel earlier, and I've not yet had occasion to tell the world as I now do. In fact, I'm holding it in my hand. There is a fine new book by Robert Richards titled The Tragic Sense of Life, Ernst Haeckel, and the Struggle over Evolutionary Thought. That is published by the University of Chicago. And we, um, it's time to um, tell you that one other thing we've got to deal with. You may or may not find this uh, egocentric and desirable, but it is necessary, uh, is the at- attack from the religious world, from certain sectors of the religious world, upon evolutionary theory. And I mean not so much creationism, uh, which one can rather easily put aside, unless you are a, a fundamentalist, and we may hear from some fundamentalist listeners who would want to fault me for, quote, putting it aside. But uh, intelligent design, as pursued at the Discovery Institute, in Seattle uh, and propagated around the country with strong argument from some fairly lucid and uh, verbal people representing that institute and its followers. Uh, That intelligent design movement has given a challenge uh, within the American school system. A major case in Pennsylvania in recent years was focused on just that problem, as you well know and as many of our listeners do. So what about the challenge from the intelligent design advocates? We'll come to that right after an update on the news and a full reintroduction of our guests is called for as we continue our discussion of modern work on and modern confirmations of the general evolutionary view of uh, the origin of species and the development of species. Those guests are Robert Richards, who is professor of history, philosophy and psychology, at the University of Chicago. Jerry Coyne, who is professor of ecology and evolution, and the author of the brand new book, whose publication provides the occasion for this very program. Uh, The book titled, Why Why Evolution is True, and that is just published by Norton, rather by Viking, by Viking. Uh, The other book in hand, also published quite recently, is the one by Bob Richards, titled, The Tragic Sense of Life, Ernst Haeckel and the Struggle Over Evolutionary Thought. And that is just recently published by the University of Chicago. Robert, I have an unusual assignment for you. This is a role-playing challenge. I want you to represent ID, intelligent design, and offer its basic arguments to Jerry Coyne, and let's see how he responds.
2: Well, um, Mr. Coyne, um, (laughs) (laughs) I want you to explain to me how there could have been a transition from the inorganic to the organic, This is a major step that evolutionary biologists just avoid completely. Now, how can this occur? Um, So I just don't understand that. You're talking about the beginning of life. I'm talking about the beginning of life. I mean, Darwin in The Origin says that he's not going to talk about the beginning of life. But this, of course, is crucial to understanding the whole evolutionary process. And I just don't... I, I can't s- understand this at all. Do you, Mr.
0: I.D., before we get a response from Professor Coyne, is it your sense that God breathes
2: life into inorganic matter? That's planet? exactly what, what Darwin even suggests in The Origin of Species. Even Darwin wasn't convinced that his theory had was completely viable without a little supernatural help.
1: My <laughs> response would be, first of all, that um, it's really not a critical problem. I mean, it is an important problem, but it's not critical to... Um, demonstrating the veracity of evolution Um, evolutionary biology really takes over once we have a self-replicating organism so the creation of that organism or how it came into being is sort of the purview of another field called abiogenesis Um, yeah we do not understand how life came about I'll admit that freely but to say that it's beyond the remit of science is wrong we have a number of problems that have been solved this is one of them and in fact there's a number of theories now there's a big book that came out called genesis which summarizes all the different theories for the origin of life and that are being tested in various laboratories and it's a difficult problem which we haven't solved but to say that because we haven't solved the problem implies that god did it is simply an exercise in futility It, it sort of eliminates all science because all unsolved problems go into the the corner of God's. So.
0: You're saying it's comparable to the critic of uh, Big Bang cosmological theory who says to the astrophysicist or cosmologist, but how do you account for that? What was there in the multi millisecond before the Big Bang?
1: Right. To uh, which
0: the cosmologist used to reply, that's beyond our science, it's beyond my concern.
1: Well, it's not, it used to be beyond our science, now physicists actually have theories about what came before the Big Bang. I mean, the argument that dr. Richards as ID person made is a famous <laughs> argument in creation It's called the the argument from ignorance whereas if we cannot explain something then it must have been designed or brought into being by well, God do
0: you have as a uh, representative of ID any other good arguments Barbara
2: oh I, I have several actually several, <laughs> some of them cribbed from Jerry Coyne's book but um, so the anthropic situation so that you know, had the uh, physical constants uh, in the universe just slightly changed a bit, uh, we wouldn't be here. So the probability that we are here is so infinitesimally small as it's as to be negligible. The only account one can possibly give why human beings and the world are in fact present is that there was uh, the dice were loaded, and here we are
1: okay well I have to respond to that that's a good one it has a, a certain appeal to people because he's right um, the constants of the universe are such that if they were, f- if certain of them were altered by as little as 2 or 3% we wouldn't be here so we have to explain that um, this is another difficult problem for physics um, there's several explanations first of all the One might be that these constants are constrained to be exactly what they are by certain laws of physics that we haven't yet found, the sort of theory of everything, the unification of all forces, which has eluded physicists for years. And there are other theories, for example, that there are many universes. They sound kind of off the wall, but physicists take these seriously, because you can actually derive them from certain theories of physics, and that different universes can actually change over time or breed new universes. And only those universes that have the physical constants that permit life to occur are the product of this kind of evolution, because um, it gives rise to stable stars. Only
0: only the fittest universes generate. The fittest
1: universes, right. It's the sort of theory of natural selection of universes, Mm -hmm. and it sounds like a desperation move on the part of physicists, but really it's a serious endeavor, and it's not sort of beyond reason now to think that there might indeed be many universes out there, so... Again, this is an argument for ignorance, because we don't understand something, God must have done it. That used to be said about humans evolving. We didn't have any fossils of humans. Uh, We didn't understand where they came from. Therefore, God did it. I mean, the whole history of biology is the elimination of these superstitious sort of celestial design-based arguments as our knowledge advances. So it's really precarious to try to pin something on divine design when we don't understand
2: it. And I think the point is that I mean, and, and Jerry, I think is absolutely right that there are a whole. I mean, science is about exploring the unknown and trying to come up with the best uh, theories to explain the unknown. And those theories change over time. Uh, the more we know, there shows still vast regions of ignorance. But because we are ignorant about some things, doesn't mean that the answer, that the fallback answer, is that God did it. And in fact. That's the way to stop all research completely. If you say, God did it, why bother to investigate the problem uh, naturally uh, after that?
0: I've got an interesting email here which relates to matters we're now discussing. And though I haven't yet invited email or uh, telephone calls, um, and I will invite them right now, Five nine one seven two double zero for telephone calls and uh, extension 720 at tribune.com for email. Uh, I want to read this one to you right now and get your response to it. Uh, this listener says... Um, I know well the argument against evolution in America, where the majority of the religious citizens are Christian and Jewish, but I am interested in the views of other regions where where religious beliefs differ from ours. Does evolution fit comfortably enough into any specific religions so that it is preached without opposition from the podium or from the pulpit? More to the point, is evolution tolerated better by those of different religions?
1: Well, the faith that you didn't mention was islam and in fact evolution is just as problematic for islam as it is for judaism and christianity because islam has its own creation myth and um it's evolution isn't taught in those countries i'm not aware actually of any religion that is deistic that is believes in a god that intervenes in the universe um actually preaching darwinism from the pulpit or accepting it as part of that well but what do
0: you make of this here's a statement of, uh, issued by the Pontifical Academy of Sciences and endorsed by the last pope, at least. We are convinced that the masses of evidence render the application of the concept of evolution to man and the other primates beyond serious dispute. That's an endorsement of evolutionary well, it's theory. Well,
1: an endorsement of almost ev- all of evolutionary biology. The Catholic Church has one official exception to that, and that's the evolution of humans, where they insist that god had to intervene in human development i guess presumably in evolution and insert a soul so the source of the soul is manifestly not evolutionary it was instilled into humans but they accepted
0: the biological line in which man descends from other hominids is uh,
1: is the case with one exception yeah So, I mean, but that's a big exception to us evolutionary biologists, because it says there's something about humans that had to be put in us by God and did not evolve, and that's a tough pill to swallow for an evolutionary biologist. Mm -hmm.
0: Of course, it's true as well, is it not, that
1: uh, religions vary in their
0: degree of uh, fundamentalist assertion. Uh, They vary along such a scale. So there are many Christian denominations and Jewish denominations, so to speak, that would have no trouble with
2: evolutionary theory. Well, it, it, I think just to come back to this this problem of the Catholic Church, the um, that position that evolutionary theory seems to be well supported, and that it's an empirical question about the extent of evolutionary theory and, and its validity, uh, was first, I think, enunciated at least in a, in a quasi-official way by the guy, by a Jesuit by the name of Eric Vassmann who was a a Jesuit who was an entomologist. And he initially was quite opposed to evolutionary (laughs) theory, wrote a little book uh, uh, called Der trichter Wickler, which was on a leaf-rolling beetle that cut a Mm -hmm. geometrical pattern in a leaf to lay its eggs. And his contention was that um, a mechanical explanation of the geometrical ability of this beetle was quite impossible. But then he started studying. Uh, He was an ant man and he studi- started studying a group of beetles that live in ant nests called the myrmecophilae and these beetles uh, when you do a geographical survey from one end of europe to the other uh, change their morphology rather dramatically they live in ant nest and they prey on ant pupa. but these beetles at one end of europe are like little tanks they're hard they have hard shells and the ants attack them but they can't uh, prevail over the beetles but as you move, uh, uh, I think it's from east to west, um, the morphology changes, and by the time you get to um, the far west, these beetles look like ants, and the ants treat them like ants and feed them and groom them while the beetles are preying on the ants. This convinced Wasmann that there really was something to evolutionary theory, and, and he became convinced about this. Uh, he thought the one exception, as Jerry mentioned, was you You had to believe at some point God zapped the soul in. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, it's all an empirical question, and the empirical evidence largely supports evolutionary theory.
0: One great, or at least one interesting, more or less modern Catholic theologian based his higher theology on the evolutionary model. That's Thayel de Chaudan, Chaudan, yeah. Yeah. Um who sees a larger sort of universal mind evolving uh, as the ultimate. And that's sort of reconciliation of well, Christianity. Really,
1: I mean, he believed that there was a directionality in evolution. That yes, is he did. some guiding a, force. Teleology, a teleology. A teleology, right. Say, yeah. That's teleology is absolutely yeah. not part of Darwinism. Yeah. Um, the whole basis of Darwinism is that it's sort of a contingent on what happens, and there's nothing that yeah. guides or directs the process, except for adaptation. You the will the not be surprised to learn that all of our phone lines are filled at the moment. We're about to pause
0: for the usual reasons. And then to the phones and to the email. To those who are trying to reach us by phone and hitting the busy signal, the proper advice, of course, is to try again after we say goodnight to a prior caller. The number, 591-7200. 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. Then five nine one seventy two hundred. But the email is infinitely available, so to speak, and you can get to that and it's particularly advised for Internet listeners who are far away, including those on another continent someplace, uh, particularly down uh, on the Pacific Rim, uh, for our listeners in Australia and in Japan and Malaysia and thereabouts. So, uh, for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we are on the air. Sorry for the brief delay. We were engaged in personal conversation, which does happen. Uh, so, directly to the phones. For your questions and comments to Jerry Coyne and Robert Richards and the first caller being Chris in Naperville. Good evening, you're on the air
3: Good evening, Uh, what is the role of mass extinctions with evolution and what are some other examples besides the dinosaurs 65 million years ago
1: Um, Well their role in evolution is that they decimate a huge swath of populations um the permian extinction um wiped out 97 percent of the species on earth made room for us yeah well yeah that was the tertiary cretaceous extinction that, that made the dinosaurs go extinct what their role is is they permit things to it opens up a whole new realm of niches for animals to evolve into so we get the appearance of many new types of creatures after that the cretaceous tertiary one um is particularly famous because by decimating the dinosaurs it's said to have opened up room for the evolution of mammals and and of course, us being a mammal. Um,
3: and it's fascinating. Science magazine just had one about a uh, thirteen, just thirteen thousand years ago, where they found these nano diamonds. But basically, you could almost point that to the birth of civilization as groups.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, these sort of smaller extinctions are somewhat problematic: a, whether they occurred or not, and b, what their causes are. But still, there've been extinctions events um, sweeping through um evolutionary time for three billion years and we're now in the middle of an anthropogenic one, humans wiping out a lot of species, which is gonna undoubtedly have its own evolutionary effects.
0: Thank you, sir, for the call. Interesting query, and let's go quickly to another on five nine one seven two double zero. And the next call coming up from Gary in Skokie. Good evening. You're on the air.
3: Yes, I have a few I have a few quick points, if I may. Um the organ rejection phenomenon is really a, uh, a contradiction of Walter Cannon's wisdom of the body, which he talked about in the last century. It should welcome with open arms a healthy organ, and that's a factor. Uh, Merriam-Webster's definition: one, a definition of evolution is a process of gradual and relatively peaceful social, political, and economic advance. <laughs> and we should, <clears throat> excuse me, we should try to live up to the name of our species, Homo sapiens, man the wise which Milton, your program does. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts to help in the process of our getting wiser. If you Google genius quotes, you'll find a number of interesting ideas. Oscar Wilde said, the public is wonderfully tolerant. It forgives everything except genius. And Albert Hubbard said, genius may have its limitations, but stupidity is not thus handicapped. Thank you for your show, and we're all evolving with your help.
0: All right. We thank you for that moment of illumination. I think it needs... uh, No particular response except applause, and we'll go directly to the next caller. On 591-7200, we go to Bloomington, and Hal in Bloomington, good evening.
4: Hi, Dr. Rosenberg, always a great show. Thank Um, you, I actually just had a comment. I'm uh, actually a grad student in uh, anthropology at this point, so um, I when I was having all of my initial foundation classes I kept remembering something when I had this discussion I think it was weightier for my dad than the uh, birds and the bees discussion I said well you know we've got the Bible yet we've got science telling us something different and he said well he thought long and hard and he said something to the extent of uh, scientific theory depends on logic and scientific method and peer review and it changes over time what you have you know, with scripture it doesn't. You know, when religions decide to change what they they view things, it's a matter of clerical committee meetings. It has nothing to do with anything else. So,
2: that's my two cents.
0: an interesting two cents, a response.
2: Well, I think uh, in the history of the sort of the relationship between science and religion, uh, while there has been contention between those two groups, uh, early on there was some harmony. But what I think you find is that. Amazingly, religion keeps giving away to science so that there are certain scientific phenomena that religion or religious people thought that they could explain. Uh, Even someone like Newton uh, was not quite convinced that his uh, theory could explain all the phenomena of the, uh, say, the planetary system. But gradually, those gaps have been filled. And so that...
5: And I'm sorry, uh, you know, you've
4: got 500 years later the Roman Catholic Church saying, well, Galileo may have had a point.
2: That's right. And,
4: And you know, there seems to be a delay of, what, half a millennia. Uh,
2: That's right, but (laughs) at least it it looks as though uh, those uh, rather wise people in the Catholic Church have now uh, exonerated Galileo and have given some partial support to evolutionary theory.
0: Another interesting angle in sort of social evolutionary theory, if you want to extend it, is, of course, the question of uh, what is the survival value of religion itself. Certain institutions are virtually universal. Certain human uh, uh, interests take institutional shape and ideational shape universally across a broad range of societies. One of them surely is religion, uh, religion defined, as some sense of the transcendent and the transcendent, active, in our lives, whether to be propitiated or otherwise. Uh, therefore, uh, we are hardwired to believe in the gods, so to speak. Uh, and one might ask whether that flows from something in uh, our animal heritage which requires that to sustain us, or whether possibly it is a reverberation to a larger truth that is out there beckoning to us and requiring us to give it some obeisance.
1: Well, um, that's
0: one way to argue for religion in modern. Yeah, there's a terms. there's
1: a huge dispute in the evolutionary biology now about whether the particulars of religious belief, that is, belief in a supernatural deity, things like that, are actually hardwired in us. I mean, it is true that most societies are religious, but there's another explanation, which I guess was Freud's, that people we're the only animal that knows we're going to die, <laughs> and we mm-hmm. want to avoid it, so we well, construct uh, a, an answer <laughs> which gives us an afterlife, and and that is not really. I mean, the phenomenon that causes that, the biological phenomenon, is that we know about the future and what's going to happen to us. That's very different from yeah. saying that our desire to worship at altars and believe in a god is hardwired in us. He does say that. The, the
0: relevant book I used to teach it is, the, is civilization, yes. uh, rather the future of an illusion. Uh, the Zukunft, uh, an illusion. Uh, but uh, he makes other arguments as well. He says the, the finitude of life, the burden that we can't be everything we want to be, that we are Uh, caught in uh, certain paths down which we necessarily must go uh, seems like a great tyranny, and to justify it, to rationalize it, we need to find some higher power which uh, makes it all bearable. Uh, Though the most onerous burden we do carry is the sense of death, to be
2: sure. You know, there's there's another application of evolutionary theory to talk about religion, which is if you compare the religious atmosphere of the United States, say, to Europe, uh, in Europe, there's very little controversy, at least at the present time, uh, about evolutionary theory and religious belief. And religious belief on, in, in Europe certainly has declined uh, measurably compared to that of the United States. But what you have in the United States, first of all, is not a national religion, but you have a competition among religious sects. Mm-hmm. And competition breeds uh, filling up different kinds of niches and making uh, room for more uh, these more speciation. So you have uh, at least one kind of application of evolutionary theory to try to explain the vigor of religious life in the United States as compared to Europe. In fact, Martin
0: Marty, among others, makes that very point. Does he? <laughs> yes, uh, in his history of American Christianity. Mm-hmm. And we go directly back to Jerry Coyne and Robert Richards, both of the University of Chicago, in our more or less annual seminar on what's been happening in evolutionary research and in evolutionary thought. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number and Paul in Wilmet is on the air. Good evening.
6: Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Yes sir. And I understand that death is a means to an end because without death you would not have reproduction and without reproduction you would not have evolution. But nevertheless, how did evolution get beyond the first death?
1: I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. Could you sort of clarify it? uh,
6: Evolution uh, depends on reproduction and uh, reproduction's purpose is to get around uh, every preceding death because death is something to be avoided, but at the same time death is something of a of a, of a tool because without death you wouldn't have the next generation and it's and the benefits of the next generation. well it would
0: follow that you reproduce before you die actually <laughs>
1: yeah, you right. do i'm um, actually death is not necessarily a sort of something that derails evolution there are lots of explanations of why falling apart and dying would be a good thing yeah, to yeah,
6: do i so. I, I, under, I understand all that yeah. but, but nevertheless there had to be an initial death and how did we get around it
1: oh because that thing reproduced before Before it died.
6: But how did evolution know that death was on the way and that, therefore, it had to gear up for a death?
1: Does evolution know things? Yeah, it doesn't really know things. What happens is you have these self-replicating organisms, and some of them die, and the ones that die um, have reproduced before they die, so that produces another generation, and that keeps going on. So there's sort of no foreknowledge implied. I don't know if that really answers your question. A
0: wonderful title from uh, a guy that you both undoubtedly... uh, think very well of Richard Dawkins. One of his books is titled, do I have this right, The, the Blind Watchmaker? Right. What does that mean? Isn't it relevant to what we're talking about now?
2: Well, I mean, it's it's an oblique reference to William Paley and Paley's argument that uh, if you are walking along a beach and you kick a rock, that for all you know, that rock may have been there forever, but if you find a watch, you know that it indicates by reason of its design there had to be a watchmaker. And, of course, Dawkins wants to say, well, there is a watchmaker, but it's a blind watchmaker. It's natural selection. It has no forethought. It simply operates. There is
0: no consciousness in nature there, or over nature.
2: There is no consciousness in nature, but it actually produces the designs that we see all around us.
0: And that's the answer to the caller's question just now, I should think. Uh, some, close to it, I would imagine. Five nine one seven two double zero. the number <laughs> as we go to the next caller, Jeff in Tinley Park. Good evening.
7: Hi, thanks. Um, I would like to ask the the panel if they could, um, if it's possible to quantify the significance of Lyell's uniformitarianism versus Gould's punctuated equilibrium. In other words, which is more responsible
2: for change in species over geologic time?
0: Good uh, question, and we need to specify what those two special angles are.
2: Well, Charles Lyell was a famous geologist. Uh, He was a friend of Darwin, and Darwin said half of his ideas came out of Lyell's head. Uh, Lyle had the notion that geological change, all the form- geological formations that we're familiar with, uh, occurred over vast periods of time, but occurred um, because of the the causes actually working today. So erosion, wind erosion, water erosion, uh, uplift, subsidence, that these were the forces that uh, gave structure to, to the Earth. But
0: slowly, very slowly. Very
2: slowly. slowly. Um, so Darwin initially thought that uh, variation, for example, was the result of slow geological change, and somehow the environment was working on organisms to produce the kind of variation uh, that they displayed and that natural selection could work on. And he also thought that natural selection, too, comparably, was really quite slow and occurred over vast periods of time. Um, so that's <laughs> that was Lyle's view, Darwin's view. I think we basically are liable Lilian uh, geologist today. That's, you know, he he was pretty much correct about that. Um, uh, Gould's punctuated equilibrium theory has more to do with um, speciation and, and large groups, and the notion that uh, species are uh, stay in an, in their, their there's a stasis in species. They don't develop for a long periods of time. Or that is, variation is. Slow and there's not a great deal of selection, but then all of a sudden there's rapid selection and rapid species change. That's one view of punctuate, and and Jerry perhaps has another cut on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're asking whether evolution is whether the evolution of organisms is slow and gradual, or whether it, it occurs in fits and starts, I'm not sure that's what your question is. But
7: well, I I think the question really is um, recognizing that both processes occur. Um, Looking over the three and a half billion years of evolution, which do you think uh, is more responsible for more change?
0: Well, Gould clearly thought that it was uh, these great leaps forward. Uh, Talk about the Burgess Shale on which he based so much. Well, uh, the Burgess
1: Shale wasn't really connected with punctuated equilibrium, it's sort of connected with uh, the effect of contingency on evolutionary history. Gould's theory of punctuate equilibrium is more than a theory of pattern. He he asserts more than just that organisms make these great leaps in morphology. He also has a mechanistic view of how that happens, which has been largely rejected by um, geneticists and evolutionary biologists. So in terms of, <laughs> it's really hard to answer that question because we don't have enough of a fossil record that's continuous enough to say whether the change has been, s- most changes have been slow and incremental or rapid. Certainly, both have been important in evolution. It's hard to the way them and give a percentage of um, change attributable to each process.
7: And, and I know I know the question is, it's almost loaded. I mean, how do you quantify something like that? But, you know, how do you quantify, for example, I mean, I think the very first caller was, was mentioning uh, catastrophes, mass extinctions, you know, so that opens up niches for, you know, plethora of species to evolve that wouldn't have had that extinction not occurred. Yet, you, so you have that, yet over huge spans of geologic time certainly evolution is occurring and i was just wondering from your point of view which do you think might have you know in a speculation i understand that but which do you think might have had more of an effect on on species over
1: time you know i want to take the carl sagan approach and say uh, <laughs> it's okay to withhold judgment until all the facts are in <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i yeah, mean I, we realize that we only have about one-tenth of one percent of the species that ever lived and most of those we just have single specimens so we really don't have enough continuous record of, um, continuous change in, enough r- of a fossil record to be able to see whether evolutionary changes been nurture small i really wouldn't want to hazard a guess un- on that un-
7: so. understood and, and and as a geologist i want to tell you i really enjoy your show you're doing a great job thank you very much we thank
0: you sir for the call and let us go directly to another the other being jim in lombard good evening
8: Yeah, hi. When I was uh, a young kid, we were taught in science class in the 50s that there was just XX chromosomes uh, and XY chromosomes, and you had uh, males and females. But looking on uh, a website of my family history, we have uh, fifth and sixth cousins that uh, have had DNA tests done, just over 24 chromosomes. And you can see just minute little variations in the family lines, little mutations that have taken place over five or six generations. And it, it has given me a new perspective on what's male and what's female and the mutations that go along through an entire genome. It may be that certain males have female traits for muta- mutations and certain females may have some male traits because you're just combining male and female uh, as you go from one generation to another. And I can see why there's a physical basis that somebody may have such a mutation after so many generations that either they are not physically able to reproduce with somebody of the uh, supposedly the opposite sex, or cultural norms may be such... That somebody of the opposite sex doesn't want to
3: reproduce. You know, sir, I think you're
0: sort of off into a realm somewhat metaphysical and surely beyond uh, the uh, proper scientific precincts of our discussion tonight, Uh, though I sense uh, the uh, deep interest you've got in these matters, and we commend you for the intensity of your concern and for the uh, idiosyncrasy of your thought. Time for a moment to tell you about some things to come and to do some other program business. Uh, To begin with, um, next Monday night, uh, uh, Philip Jenkins, who's a sociologist by background and is an historian of Christianity, he's done a new book of great fascination about the churches of the East, which were overwhelmed by Islam a good thousand years ago. Uh, More broadly, he is also very much Uh, into the game of speculating about the shape that Christianity is taking as it reforms itself even now and on into the future. He will be our guest on Monday. Tuesday, speaking of uh, animals and about the phylogenetic scale, we'll be visiting with three homo sapiens uh, who have lots of animal friends. They are people from the Brookfield Zoo. And we'll talk about zoo life and about some of the interesting animals out at Brookfield. Other things coming next week. One other thing I did want to remind you of, however, of course, is our program blog, miltsfile.com. That's how you get to it. We put up some very interesting items only recently. Uh, miltsfile.com and you uh, go there quickly and you'll find a great deal of interest Called from uh, the uh, scholarly journals from the popular magazines from yet other interesting websites and always a musical selection that you can listen to at the end Five nine one seven two double zero 00 is the number as we go to John in Elmhurst and you are on the air good evening
5: good evening uh, two things I wanted to point out you said that our belief in God was hardwired um, modern church revelations in most churches today do not have everything that God has to offer. Uh, Being a Latter-day Saint or a Mormon, we believe that God does reveal new things. and He has revealed that we were in existence before we came to this earth. So what we believe in as God is already knowledge to us, and we bring it with us. The second thing was that a day in God's life could be 10,000, 20,000, maybe a million years in man's life. So to get rid of God in evolution doesn't mean it has to happen. Uh, Evolution can still exist, but in his time and how he decided to put it.
0: Interesting point. Uh, uh, A day may, in fact, represent millennia of glacial time, and thus, uh, on God's schedule, you have room uh, not uh, for the mere last 6,000 years to account for all evolution, but uh, possibly four and a half billion years for the evolution of the Earth and its creatures.
5: Gentlemen. Yes, that was my thought. I hope that helps. Well, let's see, how,
0: let's see how our two guests respond. Robert Richards.
2: Well, I, I suppose uh, the caller is uh, trying to find some compatible relationship between evolutionary theory and religious belief, and I think depending on how you uh, define uh, your belief and what the scale of that belief is, one can make them compatible, and I think that's fine by me.
1: I'm with Bob on this. Good luck, too.
0: The caller has one advantage on you. He also knows from his own religious commitment uh, about the afterlife. He knows that if he is a good Mormon, ultimately he may well become God in another universe. Is that right?
5: That's correct. Being of God, as he said, he created us in his own image.
2: If his image is,
5: in fact, a God, God wouldn't have human offsprings, he would have God offspring.
0: As God was, man is. As 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 God is, man may become. Isn't that the formulation?
5: Yes, it is. And just that uh, the embryos of a God happens to have a human existence. That's how we believe
0: it. We thank you, sir, for the call.
5: Thank you.
0: Mormonism is indeed a fascinating uh, religion. That's fascinating in its theology and its precepts. We have entertained some discussions of that on this program, so not in quite some time. Five nine one seven two double zero 7200 is uh, the number as we go to Todd down in Champaign. Good evening, sir.
4: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, and forgive a layman's
8: question, I guess the easiest way to put this is do we learn different things about evolution by looking at the ocean as opposed to looking at Earth? You mentioned the catastrophic events. and it just seems to me that the ocean would be more insulated from those, although maybe that's not the case.
1: Um actually um the fossil we have a good fossil record in the ocean compared to what we have for terrestrial organisms because when an organism dies in the ocean it falls right to the bottom and gets fossilized um that's the ocean in fact is where we get most of the fossil record from um it's not clear there is certainly differential extinction at different in mass extinction events on terrestrial versus aquatic organisms but it differs sometimes things in the ocean tend to go extinct um, faster than things and on land and and vice versa and you can explain that because sometimes the oceans are changing in ways that the land isn't for example in terms of salinity so um, basically you learn the same principles from both that there are mass extinctions that they affect a lot of organisms and that evolution has operated in both realms
0: thank you we well, thank you sir and we go to Eileen here in Chicago good evening
7: yes hi We've been uh, talking all night about the uh, evening about the uh, past revolution, but what about today? Because it seems like all evolution in humankind has involved um, brain change, and today with computers, our brains are going so much faster. So, what about you know evolution today? I mean, how do we perceive you know how we are going to evolve from here? Uh, I would like a, an answer maybe from someone. Well, like I think that.
2: there was a, just recently an evolutionary biologist in England by the name of Jones uh, suggested that human evolution is over, that we have come to a stop in human evolution be- simply because of things like computers, namely, that um, any kind of survival traits that we might have exhibited physiologically in the past and would have then been inherited by our uh, progeny now have been taken over by technological advancements. So for example um, many people here, I think probably everybody at this table, wears eyeglasses and uh, our ancestors who had poor eyes would have undoubtedly walked off a cliff and those uh, deleterious genes or those insufficient genes would have been eliminated from the gene pool. But now uh, the pressure has been taken off keeping eyes as sharp as they might have been. So, that's one view. Uh, the other view is that's nonsense. <laughs> that that um, uh, variation continues. Uh, some variation is going to be more valuable than other variations, and there's going to be change in humankind in unpredictable ways, perhaps, but uh, it will continue on. So, we'll have to look back 100,000 years from now, or maybe a, a, hundred, a million years from now, to see what what, in fact, did occur, but it's so it's hard to project into the future.
0: Of course, you can imagine uh, anti-evolutionists about a million years from now, uh, whatever evolution would have occurred in our species, who are very offended by the arguments of some evolutionary scientists who say that they, those creatures of the future, are descended from... From, from mere, us. <laughs> ...from Homo <laughs> sapiens, from that inferior... Yes, they, they take sapiens. great umbrage at that. <laughs> can we imagine the persistence of... Well, Do you imagine, do you think, do you speculate, just for fun, about what will have come of Homo sapiens a million years from
1: now? I think every evolutionist thinks about that. Um, But it's such a contingent process that it's really hard to envision. Um, One thing we can predict is that there's new selective pressures operating on humans. I don't agree with Steve Jones' Um, characterization that human evolution has stopped. It clearly hasn't. There's a lot of new selective pressures that we need to adapt to. For example, in Africa, where people are decimated still by malaria and AIDS, um, there's undoubtedly going to be genetic change there. Now, whether we're going to become smarter or handsomer or more um, athletic—that's something that we really don't know. And so, I think most evolutionists speculate about it, but they'd really come to no conclusion.
0: Let me put one... uh, It suddenly occurs to me to try out something on you that has confounded me in recent years. Um, I used to be a tall guy. I was 6'1". Age has diminished me some as the vertebrae of the spine begin to tighten. Uh, My son is 6'5". Increasingly, as I wander around the world, I run into young men and young women as well who are taller than me and are up there in 636465. That seems to become an increasingly common type, at least in the world I inhabit, which is out on the streets and in this radio station and at the university talking with students and so on. What's
1: going on? Well, it's clearly not an evolutionary change. It's particularly because you've observed it in your lifetime. There's simply not enough time for that to happen. I suspect that it's changes in nutrition and medical care that's um, what i'm told yeah. yeah and the japanese for example were um a lot shorter than americans but after the war, the war, war they two. sprouted up yeah in fact they're predicted to outgrow us within a decade and that's purely uh-huh. due to improvements in nutrition so i think that's a one of the great
2: thing. mysteries is the dutch <laughs> the du- among the europeans i think maybe among all peoples uh, the dutch are consign- significantly taller and i don't know that there's any particularly good explanation for it um but all you have to do is go to Amsterdam. And have they been lo- taller for generations? Well, I don't um I know, they haven't. But they have sprouted up. and mm. so it it it's probably not due to exactly to nutrition, but maybe some kind of combination of uh, better nutrition plus a particular genetic background that they exhibit may be the explanation. But uh, yes, they're they're one of the interesting people. The other sort of fact that I'm sure you're conscious of. I I am with my students. A number of Asian students I can remember 20 years mm-hmm. ago, um, they were not as tall as I was, but now they tower over yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's
0: the very phenomenon that Jerry was just yeah. talking about, yeah. with regard to the Japanese. Yeah. Gentlemen, we're out of time. Our guests have been Jerry Coyne and Robert Richards. The new book by Jerry Coyne, which has been the basis for our discussion tonight, uh, is titled Why Evolution is True. And uh, it's eminently readable and I'm happy to recommend it to all who are listening. With that we will wind down for the evening with uh, my reminding you yet once again to try our uh, our program blog com gets you there. Some particularly interesting material in the most recent edition which is available to you. We'll be back again on Monday as I did foretell and our, our topic on Monday night, the history of Christianity with Philip Jenkins. Until then, Thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.